0: You hear the dogs barking i
1: can't control that hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of wrapping with reef bum i'm your host keith Burklehammer. and on today's show i am chatting once again with mike paletta hey mike how you doing how you doing pretty good how's everybody doing out there pretty good pretty good thanks for uh for being a guest again on the show we had you on a few uh few months ago and i see there's a whole bunch of people Coming into the live stream, welcome, folks. I see some uh, familiar faces um, out there. Brock B, thanks for uh, joining, algae warrior Scotty Damron. Thanks, folks. Um, so, for those of you that don't know Mike, and I don't think there's too many that don't know Mike. You know, he is an icon in the reef keeping uh, hobby, and has written a ton of articles for a uh, for, for many publications. We also talked about this before the show. He's also published a couple of books that I guess nobody, uh, nobody reads anymore, but, uh, these, uh, these, these books, if if you want to pick up something to, uh, to learn about reef keeping, I would recommend picking up the new Marine Aquarium and, um, the ultimate Marine Aquariums. Those are, um, two books that Mike wrote. And Mike has also been a, uh, a speaker at many, many reef keeping conferences in the U S and around the world. And I, I know Mike has also been doing a lot of zoom calls, um, in the, uh, in the U S and around, uh, the world, but perhaps that's going to change, right, Mike? Maybe uh, you'll start doing more in-person stuff.
0: Yeah, we when we were with Sanjay at Ecotech a couple of weeks ago, we both decided we're going to cut down on the Zoom calls because all we do for the most part is talk. We don't get to see anybody or talk with anyone or inter- interact. Or the thing we really enjoy is seeing other people's tanks. Uh, that's what gets us motivated a lot of the time, and it's nice talking with you on here, but not seeing any other tanks or anything. Kind of diminishes how much fun it is
1: yeah for sure so we'll uh we'll get into a whole bunch of stuff i know you've um you've you've been on a couple of videos recently and and talked about some stuff so perhaps we'll dig a little bit deeper into that before we um start chatting with mike though i want to thank the show's sponsor marine depot i really appreciate marine depot being a sponsor of the show and i also appreciate all you folks out there in terms of the viewers so please spread the word and hit that like button because uh, the more people that like this live stream, the more people will uh, see it in that recommendation engine on YouTube. So please hit that like button. So, um, and and I also encourage everybody out there that's watching to um, ask questions in the chat. We have Mike probably until about 8.15, 8.30 at the latest. So, um, you know, as usual, I have a lot of questions and and, want to dig into some stuff with Mike, but... Definitely encourage everybody to uh, to ask questions in the chat. So so Mike, how's it going? I see you got a you got a freshwater tank behind you there. What's going on with that?
0: Yeah, since the last time I was on, I basically finally gave up on the Elos tank working as a uh, long-term saltwater tank. My desire was actually to have it as a non- Acropora SPS tank, full of Montiparas, post and I started with Marco Rock four years ago, and the tank never came to fruition. That is, it isn't like any of my other tanks. And this is the first tank I ever did with Dead Rock. And Sanjay has been having the same issues. And I've talked with a lot of other people around the country and around the world that have started with Dead Rock. And a lot of us have had the same experience. The tank settles in, the cycle's set, you put the corals in, they sit there, and two or three months later, they just fizzle out. They never really encrust like they do in my normal tanks. They never really take off. And none of us could figure out why, because we've all added bacteria, we've all added other live rock, we've all added uh, sponge rock, we've all added a lot of different things. None of us have had the level of success we have with our other tanks, and the only thing we can attribute it to is the rocks. And in fact, one of my friends sent in some of the rocks for analysis and found that they were leaching kind of a plastic compound. So that may be something that's deleterious to the corals that I wasn't taking out because I didn't run a lot of carbon or a lot of other... Media for extracting things. So that may be necessary, but I just gave up and went to freshwater and got back to my roots because literally 55 years ago, I had freshwater tanks. They're a lot different now. This is a lot easier. It's actually a lot more fun than I remember it being. Uh, the only pain is doing the uh, 50% water changes every week.
1: But it's freshwater, so it's not as bad as saltwater. Yeah, no, and it's a beautiful tank. It's just uh, full of life, and I, I love the uh, the live plants. And, and uh, I mentioned before the show that I years and years and years ago tried to keep a freshwater, um, you know, tank with, with live plants and didn't have a lot of success. But you said that it had probably something to do not not using CO2, but the uh, the actual uh, soil. The uh... yeah, because
0: this is a non CO2 tank. I wanted to make it as untechnical as I could, and this is as simple a tank as I could set up so basically the the bottom substrate is actually potting soil that i got at walmart baked it in the oven to drive off the ammonia wetted it put it on the bottom it's roughly two inches deep then put fluoride on top of that stones in the plants and the plants have gone berserk in this system uh there were on the over my right shoulder i don't know if you can see it or not is uh dwarf sagittarius i put in 20 dwarf sads to be the ground cover and now there's over 150 of them in the tank, and that's in three months. So they've taken off like crazy. They provide a, a substrate and a hiding place for all the baby fish, the baby shrimp, and everything else. So I've been uh, really happy with it. And that's, ties, tries, I've, that's one of the things I learned during COVID. Try to make things as simple as you can and as easy as you can because you're more likely to do them. So while we had a lot of time over the last year, I tried to simplify a lot of things in my tanks.
1: Simplification, uh, being able to simplify things and reef keeping goes a long, long way. I mean, it's just, um, on, on, on many different levels. I find that, um, you know, I, 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 try to put in a lot of time on a project to try to simplify, it. you know, something, if I have to put in 10, 12 hours on, on a project to make life easier down the road, I'll do it. Or if it's something that's going to take me a week and, and many, many hours to do, I think it's well worth it because, um, you know, I spent a lot of time on the plumbing for both of my systems to be able to um, do automatic, uh, you know, water changes. not automatic in terms of like doing a water change without me lifting a finger. I still have to flip, you know, um, uh, levers and, and what have you and turn on a, uh, a pump to pump water out and then pump water back in. But just to set up the plumbing where I could do, you know, now, a manual 30-gallon water change in probably five minutes is uh, is huge.
0: Yeah, I, I, I try to do the same thing on this system where I now have marks on the sump as where each five-gallon increment of water removed from the system is. So I can remove my 50 gallons, which takes about 15 minutes, and just run it right down the sewer. Then I just put a, another tube back in the 50-gallon uh, reservoir, drain it into the tank, and I do it slowly because I found that dumping a lot of new fresh salt water, even though it's usually cured for a week, is not the best thing. It takes like an hour, an hour and a half for that water to slowly go in. But I've set up the tank now where none of the tank's inhabitants are sitting underneath lights uh, and dry for any length of time. So there's no big rush in order to get the water back in. So that's one of the things I've done to simplify things. Uh, I've also made it easier to, to clean, take the detritus out of the tank. I now have polyester pads around the overflows And for five minutes, that takes me to change them out. It takes longer to hose them out in the yard, which I don't get to do in the wintertime, Mm -hmm. to hose them out than it does to exchange them. So it's really easy and simple. And that has made a huge difference in the amount of uh, STN I was getting in the tank because I was getting it wherever detritus was settling along the plugs. Now that there's no longer any detritus in the tank, the uh, slow tissue necrosis has dropped dramatically.
1: Yeah, you know. I think the, since the last time I've had you on, I've started actually using a powerhead to blow detritus off of the rocks in, in, in my tank. And, um, you know, it's it's really something that um, has helped because, you know, I get little patches of cyano here and there. And, and uh, if I don't do anything, then the cyano just kind of gets worse. So, uh, you know, even though it's it's a pain in the butt to do it. And, um, you know, to get a powerhead and go around and blow things around, it's, it's still something that, um, I'm trying to add into my routine, at least to try to do, I don't know, I'm making a commitment to try to do it at least, uh, two or three times a week.
0: Yeah, I'm on the, now on the every other day cycle for a while, I was doing it every day, but now that I've gotten most of the detritus out of the tank and have manipulated the head, So there's aren't, there's even fewer dead spots in the tank. I have to do it less. And by having the uh, really efficient means for taking detritus out with these polyester pads, it's made it a lot easier and I can do it a lot faster. Because before I'd go with a ball basin, it was like it snowed in the tank. There was just so much detritus on the rock. Now it's just a, like a light drizzle. So it's a lot better in that regard.
1: Is your 500 a bare bottom or do you have sand in there? It's bare bottom. So are you, you're also blasting the, the bare bottom as well?
0: Yeah, there's, there's a MP60 that blows across the front. There's a Panther Ray 64 running in the middle, and there's a uh, uh, Tunze Stream on the back. So all three areas. There's no dead areas on the bottom that I I see easily. There's some rock behind it, but when I go in with a hose behind the rock, I don't pull out a ton of uh, brown muck like I used to do before I got the water flow so good.
1: Was your 90, or the Elos, was that a bare bottom as well, or did you have sand Yeah. Okay.
0: That's bare bottom as did, well. Did
1: you ever think about um, just doing a reboot with Live Rock only with that tank, just take taking out the Marco Rock, or did you just uh, feel like you I needed it? I thought a...
0: about it, but I said, do I want to spend the money redoing a tank It's still going to take a few years to settle in or do something simple? Because this tank that sits behind me, when you walk in the front door, this is what you see. So I don't want people looking at a tank that goes, "Yeah, this is Mike Palotta's house, and he got this crappy coral tank." behind. So I wanted something that, when you see it right away, you go, "Ah, oh, this guy has some clue what he's talking about." So this tank has grown in really fast. People like the green plants and the the bright colored fish, so it's easy.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great look. So
0: let's let's. I mean, I still have four other tanks, so I don't really. Need
1: yeah, no, I think you you have your reef tank fix uh, still uh, in in place there. Let's, um, let's talk about, um, you know, we're coming into the summertime and we're starting to get some hotter uh, weather. What, what do you do in terms of um, anything to keep your 500 uh, cool? Do you have a chiller in that tank?
0: No, I'm lucky I don't have to. One, it's in the basement. Two, I got a, uh, a duct cover that blows the air conditioning for the whole downstairs wow. blows across the tank, which helps a lot. And then I got a a Vornado, the biggest Vornado fan, and I cool it by evaporative cooling as well. Uh, The only thing I also have to run now, though, because it's summertime, I also have to run a big uh, two-gallon dehumidifier down there, too. That tends to heat the room. So I've moved that into a different room, and I can open up the door to the garage so it blows the hot air into the garage, but it still dehumidifies the room.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, on on my system, I run, uh, on one of my, you know, my established system, I'm running metal halides. And you know the system is in the basement, the finished basement, and I'm, you know, in in Vermont, it doesn't really get uh, terribly, terribly hot, but it can get kind of hot in the room. And I I just kind of messed up in terms of how I set up the. I do have a chiller on that uh, tank, so I have the 187 gallon tank, and then I got a 75 gallon frag tank that's plumbed into that, as well as a 50 gallon frag tank that's plumbed into that. And everything has metal halide lights. Well, you know, in in the um, in the fall and the winter time and most of the spring. It's not an issue in terms of uh, heat; the chiller never goes on. But right. now this time of the year, when it's temperature air temperature gets to you know eighty plus, the uh, the chiller kicks on, and, and the problem with the way I had it set up is that uh, essentially the exhaust is going out into the frag tank room, and it's heating the whole room up. So yeah, that's, that's
0: I've done that too. I yeah. So that w- yeah you got to you got to set up a design so that the heat from the chiller gets blown out or sucked out with a pump.
1: Yeah, or with a fan, right? So I have I have two fans over the frag tanks that um, are helping in terms of keeping it cool. But what I've also uh, done is I've changed the light cycle on the uh, on the frag tank, so they're they're going on a couple hours earlier than the uh, display tank, and so that's um, that's made things better. What so what do you like in terms of your temperature range for um, for your tanks?
0: I, I keep it around seventy seven, seventy eight in the summertime. And I keep it a little bit cooler in, or I actually, I keep it around 76, 77 in the summertime. And I keep it 78, 79 in the wintertime. My thought process is if I get a power outage, I don't want it to get too hot too fast. So I keep it cooler in the summer. And conversely, in the wintertime, if the power should shut off, having a tank warmer, it'll take longer for it to get cool. So in that regard, I'm trying to protect myself against the stupidity of the power companies here.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, my... Um... But I
0: also do have a uh, uh, 200 amp generator, so I can kick the flow in. I can go without the lights for three or four days. But if I needed to, to run the, the flow, which is far more critical in my mind, yeah. uh, I, have, I have enough generator to do that.
1: Uh, P. Guy, May, thanks for the uh, for the super chat, and it's got a question. Hi, great guest. Does Mike use trace elements along with his calcium reactor?
0: I'm, I'm not using the, the calcium reactor anymore. I was having too much of an issue with CO2 and keeping the pH down hmm. just because most of the calcium reactors, you have to dump the, re- the water somewhere that's at a very low pH. And I found I was having more problems getting the pH over 8.0 when I was running a calcium reactor. So I've gone to a uh, Bulkner Supplies three-parter with uh, uh, soda ash, calcium chloride, and uh, magnesium, do that. And I do uh, Reef Moonshiners uh, uh, trace elements every day And what I like about it is you can go and get your ICP test and then plug your numbers into his calculator and it'll tell you exactly how much to dose every day. So that has made uh, a big difference. That's one of the, I did like 18 experiments over the year and a half we were in uh, quarantine. And that's one of the things that I did find made a a big difference in terms of getting the corals to grow in coloration was adding trace elements and not having everything at zero all the time.
1: Hmm. So did, um, did you try different things in terms of, um, trying to have your pH elevated with the, uh, with the calcium reactor? You know, I, one, one thing that I've been doing is dripping the effluent into, um, you know, close to where, where the uh, skimmer pump is, try to, um, degas that way. And it, and it seems to have, um, been working. And I've been also using a lot of, um, washer that's to help elevate the pH. So, and, and another big thing that helped me is, um, I had a uh, an air exchange unit installed so especially in the winter time to bring uh, the fresh air into the house is, is definitely helped so yeah I mean for me it's it's helped me elevate my pH even with the couch reactor into like the, the eight 8.1 to 8.4 even 8.5 range
0: yeah I've done all I did all that but that got to be too much of a pain to mix up the kalkwasser every night and I was running a co2 scrubber that became prohibitively expensive because I was using up the media every two weeks and I was running a huge reactor on that 500. Mm. So I've gone to opening the window slightly at night and putting a damp towel across it to keep the heat up and let the air in. That's helped. But I've also increased with the Vornado fan blowing across it. That's helped. But I also got a CO2 monitor to monitor what the CO2 levels in the air in the room are. Because if the CO2 levels are high, it really doesn't matter what you're doing. You're not going to be able to bring down or bring down the CO2 levels in the tank. And bring up your ph so now i monitor what the co2 levels are in the room what else i did was i got real fine air stones and those sit in my overflow pipes going down from the tank and it's a four foot drop so the air stones are sitting at the bottom and they blow up across the top all four feet Hmm. and they help drive off the co2 that way and that's helped bring it up about 0.2 so now my pH really never drops below 8.0 at night and goes up to like eight three eight four every day. Oh, great! And that has also significantly improved the growth rates in the corals.
1: Yeah, no, pH is uh, certainly very uh, important. How much? So how much of the uh, you using three part? Is that what you're using? How, how yeah. much of each part are you using? Yeah, I have to dose every day.
0: I'm doing about three hundred sixty to four hundred uh, milliliters of their. Mix yeah every day.
1: Yeah, I was I was I was doing like about up to 300 uh, I was using the ESV 2 part and I was doing um, almost 300 mls a day on the ESV 2 part And I was get getting a little expensive <laughs> The uh, I'd imagine the bulk reef supplies a little bit more uh, economical
0: Yeah, and I buy it in uh, 50 pound or 35 pound buckets. So that makes it a little more reasonable I mean, the only pain is mixing it up uh once a week once every ten days because it really goes through the one gallon containers, and when you go on vacation you're going to make sure you have enough in there so it doesn't start being yeah, depleted by the end of the vacation I know
1: um, folks, I just again want to encourage you to ask questions in in the uh, in the chat while we have mike here it's a uh, it's a great opportunity with the uh, a reef keeping icon on the uh, on the show in the live stream so um let's uh there's so many different things I want to ask you here, uh, Mike. I know, I know. You just mentioned before uh, the uh, RTN and STN, and I, I saw some of your uh, videos from the past few days where you talked about, um, you know, using a witch hazel, right, to help um, right. to help cure that in the uh, in the tank. Who, um, where do you where do you find witch hazel?
0: Witch hazel, I just get it uh, Walmart. Believe it or not, it's like 350 for a bottle. Uh, you need roughly. 10 milliliters per hundred gallons. I've done higher than that, but I only recommend 10 milliliters per hundred gallons for most people. You need, what you have to do, there's been a whole lot, and there's actually gonna be in the the latest uh, Coral Magazine coming out. There's a whole article on good and bad bacteria and the biomes and everything else. Uh, And and it all ties into what, what we've already been talking about. In that when you have low pH and high CO2, or any kind of real instability, it really stresses the microbiome around the corals and allows pathogenic bacteria to tend to predominate. And that's what causes the STN, or RTN if it's really, really stressed. So what you're doing with the witch hazel, which is a uh, antiseptic, is you're killing, trying to kill or reduce the levels of bacteria on the surface. Now, that's all well and good. You can slow it down, but you don't necessarily get rid of it first thing you got to do is improve your stability in your tank and not have a major stressor occur uh, second thing you've got to do is you have to reintroduce the good bacteria so in that regard I started adding after a week started adding microbacter 7 Biodigest, digest uh, bacteria a wide variety as wide a variety of bacteria as I could to see if I could get rid of the pathogenic bacteria actually in the, in the mid 1990s i know most of you all weren't born in the mid 1990s but in the mid 1990s they were starting to bring in acropores from fiji and i used to fly out to california i live in pittsburgh i used to fly out to la on wednesdays the night they were bringing in the corals hmm. and they would take them out of the bags they would rebag and water them and i would carry the bags onto the plane and bring them home <laughs> so yes i've had serious ocd for most of my adult life uh that was when you could carry corals onto a plane, and it wasn't, you know, against everything yeah. out there. But what you could tell whenever these corals came in, you could tell if it was a good batch of corals or a bad batch of corals simply by the smell. Mm. There's nothing like the smell of corals that are RTNing. It has a distinct yeah. odor, <laughs> and there has been a lot of debate over the past 25 years, 30 years almost, as to what is causing this. Uh, everything from ciliates to paramecium, but I always thought having worked in infectious disease and oncology that it was a bacteria because it looked like an infectious disease. So what I did is I had uh, I worked closely with the UPMC microbiology department. I would scrape off some of the tissue from the dead or dying corals and have them test out what it was, and interestingly what they found was high, liber- high levels of vibrio. Actually, Vibrio vulnificus, which is a really pathogenic bacteria, but it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere in the ocean, and it, but Vibrio is also what causes cholera and a lot of other maladies, but I always assumed it was what the, the, killed the, the corals then. In those days, I'm trying to think of what the drug we used. I want to say it was vancomycin, which is a really strong antibiotic, but it's also toxic to 1% of the population get uh, leukemia from being exposed to it so it wasn't something you wanted to just dump into your tank to kill the vibrio so we came up with the idea of if you lower the temperature because most of these corals that came from Fiji were coming from high temperature water and it was you could tell by how warm the bags were when they came in and we would also dose the tank heavily with iodine and by doing that we could stop the vibrio or the RTN explosions in the tank now people aren't getting the RTN like they used to for the most part. Now people get more STN. And it's a, a slower, more progressive, and prolonged disease. And we've, I've been working at different things to try and treat it. Uh, witch hazel is one of the ways we do for treating the whole tank. I've also used witch hazel in combination with Melifix, because Melifix also has some antiseptic uh, effect uh, properties. The other thing I've done whenever I have a coral head that's affected by it I've dipped it in uh, witch hazel solution. I've also poured pure peroxide mm-hmm. on it and let it soak in the peroxide for 45 seconds. Or I've also gone to treating it with doxycycline or amoxicillin and try to kill the bacteria that way. I'd love to say I have the absolute cure. It works 100% of the time, but I would be lying to you. Sometimes it works beautifully. The corals come through it well. You put them back in the tank. The polyps open up. You've done something good. Sometimes it just sort of stabilize. They're good for two weeks, a month, six weeks. All of a sudden, they get it again and die. Sometimes they never recover. Uh, I'd love to give you percentages, but it it, it varies by species. I mean, the the more difficult corals like Acropora tenuis, those are the worst for when they get STN. Those I've had the least success with. Uh, Other corals I've had a lot more success with in managing the the STN. But in terms of treating the tank, like I said, the first thing you want to do is kill off as much of the bad bacteria as you can Second thing you want to do is reintroduce new good bacteria, and there's also even a company now, I think it's called Aquabiomics, that will assess the bacterial load in your tank and tell you how your bacteria compares with good tanks and what to do if you have a high pathogenic level of bacteria. So I actually just sent a test in this week just to see, since my tank is for the most part knock on wood, STN free right now. I want to see if I've gotten things in a balanced way or if there still is a, a high percentage of Vibrio in the tank and that I still need to
1: be aggressively managing it.
0: I've also tried using ozone, UV. Those have had basically no effect on it whatsoever. So do,
1: do you think uh, when you see the um, the bad bacteria taking over and, and you've got the uh, the STN or the RTN events in the tank, is, is that um... – would, would that be potentially just one RTN event or STN event in terms of a coral in the tank? Could that be a sign of it? Or do you think it's just more, um, you know, um, systematic that way in terms of several colonies res- exhibiting that?
0: I've had RTN occur on single corals, usually new corals that I've brought in, or occasionally an old coral that's sitting there and suddenly gets wiped out. But STN I've had as more long-term, slow, painful. All your corals will look great. One frag dies, you don't know why. You got sit there and go, should I treat this or not? A week later, another one goes. Then you know you have to treat it because another week, another one's going to go. Or you'll see a dead spot on a colony for no reason. The whole colony is doing great. All of a sudden, one spot dies. Usually it starts at the bottom, but sometimes in large colonies, it starts in the middle. All of those, in my mind, are variations of STN. Now when I see it in a coral that is in the tank, I will get peroxide and base the coral with the peroxide. I will then hit it with some Lugol's iodine, and then I will start treating with the uh, witch hazel in the tank. Fortunately, like I said, right now things are good because I have worked really hard over the, since the beginning of the year. I stopped doing experiments, and I've tried to keep the tank as stable yeah. as possible. That has made a huge difference, the stability factor, rather than me constantly putzing around to try and make things incrementally better. And I mean, if, if anyone learns anything from tonight's talk, try to keep your tank as stable as possible. If you want to experiment, understand it. that's going to set things back. It's not necessarily going to incrementally improve things. Uh, literally in 1986, I gave the talk, first talk in Toronto. And one of the things I ever, I, most profound things I ever said was nothing good ever happens fast in a reef tank. Only bad things happen fast. And people sort of nodded their heads and then but one guy went out, and I also talked about iodine that time. And I was talking about adding like two drops per gallon once a week. He went home and added a whole bottle of Lugol's iodine and bleached his <laughs> entire tank. So that would, things do not doing more of something does not yeah. necessarily make anything better. Yeah. And that's one of the things people don't really understand is if you look at all of us in the hobby, the hobby has progressed profoundly and amazingly over the last twenty years. So now everybody has at least this level of success. You can keep 95% of the stuff with no problem. Everybody's here. And if you looked at all the people doing it, everybody does it a little bit different. Nobody does it the same. So what does that mean? We all have this basic level of knowledge, and then one guy does a little bit here, another guy does a little bit here. We tend to hybridize things, thinking this is going to make our tank so much better, and it doesn't necessarily do that. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that drives me nuts is looking online at these, the most dazzling, amazing pictures. And I've never had, as much as I would like to, I've never had corals that look, my whole tank didn't look like those those corals in the pictures. I have nice looking corals. I'm very happy with them. But I don't do Photoshop. I don't put on six different kinds of lights, orange glasses (laughs) and some other thing, and a black light flashlight to get these colors on things. So I, I go in understanding. I also try to grow things not to be this big, but to be this big so that if I sit 10 feet away, I can look at a coral and go, that looks really good as a big colony. And I, I sadly think a lot of the people in this hobby miss out on that. Uh, when I go see people's tanks with big colonies, it's always a thrill because one, I know they'll give me a frag or whatever <laughs> I want, but two, because the colonies look really special. It looks much more reef-like than what our tanks look yeah. like.
1: You know, um, this is kind of leading... Down a a line of um, uh, t- towards a subject that I, I wanted to ask you about, and that is the uh, the name game. When I had Jake Adams on the uh, on the live stream, <laughs> you know, we uh, we talked about the name game, and he was certainly against it, and, and more about um, talking about the corals using the scientific names. So um, I can only assume that you feel the same way.
0: I actually wrote an article about that seven years ago. That the name game is a marketing ploy, in my mind. It, it helps you establish to a level of here of what certain things should be. But now, whenever Indonesia was closed, nothing was coming in. What I saw were five vendors selling five of the same corals with five different names. So in that regard, it's it's lost its ability. Originally, the, the name game was to provide lineage of where the corals it came from. It wasn't a marketing point. Then uh, my good friend, Steve Tyree, Realize that if it was a tyree this or a tyree that, it had more marketability. It had more value. I don't know if you remember the corals of the month, where you yes. would get on his waiting yeah. list. Yeah, two years out, right? Literally for years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to get to get corals, which I give him credit for because it really did help expand the the, the love of the corals. And but I have been at, at frag swaps and shows and sit and listen to people talking. And I go, what's this coral? And they go, well, that's the blue rainbow from paradise. And I go, what's this coral? Oh, that one doesn't have a name, but it's, you know, half the price, but it's just as good. No, 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 I want the name coral. So the vendors aren't doing anything that the public doesn't want. The public wants named corals. I don't fully understand why, because once again, I don't want a little frag in my tank for 10 years that looks like a little frag. I want something to grow a big colony. I mean, anyone that has seen a frag of like uh, Vivid's confetti, it's gorgeous as a little frag, but when it gets to be a big colony, it's absolutely astoundingly beautiful. Why you would want a little tiny frag of that rather than a big colony, I don't understand. But as as I've come through this uh Corona situation, I realize I don't understand a lot of th- stuff now. I just don't fight it like I used to.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's um things have certainly changed and uh you know, we, we talked about this with Jake and, and that, uh, you know, you kind of referred to it. It's like when you stand back and look at the tank, you want to be able to like have some eye-catching corals. And a lot of these uh, tenuous and, and other corals with these uh, fancy names and high prices, they're not that great to look at at a distance. They're just not eye-catching. But when you put on the uh, the blue LEDs and you got the fluorescence that are sh- that's showing through, you know, that's where, um, you know, it, it attracts the attention, but, um, you know, that's a whole nother thing in terms of the, the preference for tanks that are lit by blue lights.
0: Well, in, in my tanks, I run the, uh, daylight for six hours a day where it looks bright in daylight. It's probably 1400 K mm-hmm. then after like nine o'clock, after the lights go out, then I run the blue lights. So I get the best of both worlds, but I, I'm old school. I still like blue corals that are blue. I still like purple corals that are purple. I still like reds and pinks. And if you run all blue lights, you don't see blue corals and you don't see pink corals. And to me, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that catches my eye. A pink and a blue cor- or blue coral do catch my eye. So it, it's, I mean, I understand, but that, that's where else the, the hobby in my mind has gone off the path somewhat. And that so many people look at this as a way to make money to support the hobby. So they buy a rainbow splice for $1,100, thinking that I'm gonna grow this really fast and I'm gonna sell two pieces of it's gonna pay for it and it's gonna pay for the other five frags I bought. But if it dies, well I'm out $1,100. You know, the the question I have is how many of these frags that people buy actually make it into a colony? Right. I'm guessing it's not as high as, as it used to be when we used to get three quarter inch and one inch frags and stuff. Because a quarter-inch frag has, from my experiments, and Dita Brockman's done the same experiments, frags at a quarter-inch or less have about a 90% mortality rate. Only when you get to half an inch, they have about a 75% mortality rate. Only when you get to three-quarters an inch do they have over a 70% survival rate. I'm looking for a survival rate. I'm not looking to grow this into this into this over the course of a year. I mean, granted, I have a lot of named frags downstairs in the tank. And it has taken forever, and I mean forever, for them to get into something from a quarter inch to a half an inch to an inch, you're talking a year and a half in order for them to start to look like yeah. stuff. I mean, part of that is that my problem is that I putts around with the tank too much, so they don't grow as fast as they do in other people's tanks. But when you start off with a small frag, even if it doubles every four months, a quarter inch doubled in four months is only a half an inch.
1: Yeah, uh, you know. Some of my favorite corals are um, old named corals, like the Oregon Blue Tort. I think there's just nothing more spectacular than that blue coral. I mean, it's just, it's just stunning to me. And uh, Tyree Purple Monster, you know, that's uh, that's kind of a hard one to uh, to find these days. And I have the slowest growing coral. Yeah, I had in the history I, of the I universe. Had, um, I had two different experiences with it. My 225 gallon tank back in Connecticut years and years ago. Um, it grew like a weed for me. You know, it just really grew very fast. But um, I got a frag for the, for the, uh, for the 187 gallon tank here and I, and I put it on a rock, you know, high up in the, uh, in the reef under the halides and it just encrusted like crazy over the rocks and maybe grew a quarter inch up. And then uh, a few months ago, I finally was able to get in there with some really heavy duty, um, you know, frag uh, shears and it was able to, to break off like a three quarter inch nub. And I put it on a frag tile in my frag tank. And now the thing is finally growing. So, you know, in the frag tank. Y'all
0: keep me in mind for whenever you have yeah. another one. <laughs> that's that's, on one, that's one of the few corals on my list at this point. Because Jake actually uh, was in Solomon's, I think, two or three years ago. And saw the big colonies of it there from the Solomon's. Because I remember when uh, mm. Bob Mankin brought it in. And basically Tyree got it from him in the mid-90s. And... In Tyree's tank, it looked like Christmas trees, and it was popsicle purple, yeah. and it was one of the most spectacular corals we saw in those days, because most of the corals back then were beige or brown, and if they had purple tips, they were worth twice as much as they were.
1: Yes, yeah, I I, I love that coral. So, yeah, I will definitely uh, keep you uh, in, in, uh, in the list. Put me on the list. On the list. <laughs> um, so we got we got a bunch of comments in the uh, in the in the chat here, uh, Mike, and just want to remind you folks to please hit that uh, like button, so more people can find the uh, the live stream. We've only got 32 likes, and we've got about 90 people watching. So uh, get busy, folks. So um, Alex Korea, my guest uh, on the show uh, recently, has got a whole bunch of questions, and he, he actually has uh, some follow up questions for you, Mike, about the um, the Vibrio that we've been talking about. So um, one of the questions he asked is, do you think the addition of the bacteria should be a, should be the permanent solution in avoiding the Vibrio succeeding? And how often should we add and what brands of bacteria? I think you already mentioned you're using the uh, Brightwell's Microbacter 7.
0: Well, that's just managing, you're still just managing the symptoms. The, the cure is getting your tank to be as stable as possible. It's just for my own stupidity and my own mistakes. I found that any kind of big stressor can kick in another episode of STN. So if you can keep things stable and then eradicate the bacteria, bad bacteria, and then reintroduce the good bacteria, that's basically how you solve the issue. And in, in terms of the, the types of bacteria that I'm adding, I add Microbacter 7, I own uh, Biodigest, I own Dr. Tim, add Dr. Tim's, I add Tunzies, and there's one other one. Uh, because I don't think any one strain or culture or whatever has everything good i want in it so you add that you add the witch hazel at night because that seems to be when the bacterial swarms tend to come up more so you're trying to eradicate them right as the lights go out and then you add the new bacteria in the morning to try and replace them around the microbiome around the corals
1: so those uh, the bacteria are going to consume a lot of nitrates and phosphates as well right is that um
0: some of them are these uh, the vibrio do not consume a lot of nitrates a lot of the other ones. What, what, do. what you're adding, though, is, uh,
1: is uh, right going to consume. Like I know the Microbacter Seven can uh, drastically reduce the nitrates and, and phosphates. What, it'll, what, it'll help
0: clean the tank, or you can even add a small amount of Vibrant. I've had mixed issues with Vibrant. I've had it work phenomenally well, but I've had also issues where it took things down way too fast, way too aggressively. That's another bacteria that you can culture that you can add. Are, so just go slow is what I will suggest when you add these. But I, like I said, I suggest adding a mixture rather than there's one perfect one. The same thing when I add coral foods. I don't believe there's any one perfect coral food. So I add a variety of things, including right now I'm feeding live rotifers and live phytoplankton I'm culturing.
1: So um, what are you using? Are you using any uh, traditional nutrient export um, things at this point besides protein skimming on your uh, on your tank? Are you using uh, macroalgae or are you using... GFO or do you not need that? stuff? I, I have
0: Miracle Mud and on the Miracle Mud, I have a refugium filled with Calerpa and up in the overflow box is about a five gallon system filled with Miracle Mud and it has a red Tunzi light in it and it grows Calerpa in there that I could feed small countries with how much Calerpa it grows. So that has, has done a, a great job at keeping my uh, phosphates less than one and my nitrates of five to ten. Hmm. Uh, I think we talked about this the last time, but last year at this time, I did a survey of 20 of the people that I think have really phenomenal success and really phenomenal corals, and I got all of their data, and I mean all their data. I spent a week for six weeks gathering data. Each week I would gather it from 20 guys, which was like herding cats to get them (laughs) all their data in, but fortunately they did that. And one of the interesting things I found was there was all kind of different variances about how much nitrate and how much phosphate they kept. But the people that I considered the most successful that had the most colorful corals didn't necessarily have the lowest nitrates and lowest phosphates. They actually had relatively high ones. But what they all had was a ratio of nitrate to phosphate of at least 50 to 1 nitrate to phosphate. Those are the people that had the nicest, fastest growth and most colorful corals. So from that standpoint, I have been trying to keep my nitrate to phosphate ratio at least 50 to one and even better, 100 to one. And growing Kalerpa, Kalerpa is selective in that it will remove nitrates more than it will phosphates. So phosphates will be consumed by the corals because phosphate is a prime component of ATP which is the energy to drive the corals. So one of the things I have tried to do is minimize phosphate additions into the tank. Uh, like I said, during this quarantine, I did a lot of experiments and had a lot of free time on my hands. So one of the things I did was I assessed 25 different compounds for how much phosphate they contained. <laughs> so I started this thinking, okay, we all talk about detritus, but no one's really looked at how much phosphate is in detritus. So I started off with a tablespoon of uh, detritus, dried detritus, and put it in a cup of water. It was off the scale. Okay, I took a, a teaspoon and put it in a liter of water still off the scale. I finally got where I was adding a quarter teaspoon of dried detritus into a liter of water, RODI water, and that gave me a a phosphate level of 0.62. So think about that. A quarter teaspoon of dried detritus had that. I go, okay, here's my baseline. Let's measure some other things. So I was also having an issue. I was starting to use some freeze-dried foods and I was feeding them constantly. Freeze-dried krill, freeze-dried mysis, freeze-dried cyclops, freeze-dried rotifers. All of those, when I took a quarter teaspoon and put them in a, a one liter of RODI water, they were all off the scale. No more feeding freeze-dried food aggressively. I feed it very slowly now. Then I went and looked at a lot of the other foods that we do. Mysis, frozen mysis. I would squeezed mm-hmm. the juice out of the mysis, put it in, off the scale. So every all my mice gets rinsed. Okay, how about mice itself? Let it sit in there for a couple hours, take it off. It has a reading of like 0. 0.8. <laughs> so it's really high in, in phosphate as well. I, obviously, I had a lot of free time <laughs> on my hand that I got to do this for like a month, but it was amazing how high, how many things are in phosphate. The only things I found that were relatively low in phosphate were flake foods that were predominantly plant-based. Those had the lowest on, on my 0.62 scale of phosphate. I call it the 0.62 scale because that's what the trinus wedge was, which was the first thing I tested. So anything that came in below that I thought was pretty good. But literally everything has phosphate in it to some degree. So what you have to try and control is how much you're adding into it. I mean, almost all of us use RODI water. I test for that with a TDS meter all the time to make sure it's... When it gets to four, I change everything out. So. I am very aggressive at doing that, too. Uh, I, I screwed up, and I was using uh, lanthanum chloride to bring my phosphates down, and I got lazy one night, and I was usually doing over a very slow period, and I added it, and it's like it snowed in the tank. I lost my yellow tank. I lost my pair of Hawaiian flame rasses. I lost five other serolabrous rasses stupidity and being fast nothing good happens fast because i added it too quickly instead of dropping it in over the course of a night to take the phosphate levels down so i'm i've gone to a much more natural much more simple system makes
1: sense uh lynn reef nerd thank you so much for that super chat her comment is always appreciate knowledge from the pro thank you keith and mike so lanthium chloride that's some heavy stuff did, um, what do you think spiked your uh, phosphates? You had to really um, use that to— uh, This was using it. the
0: freeze-dried food, and I had run out of reagent for my phosphate, my uh, Hanna phosphate. And I didn't think, okay, in a week, my phosphate levels can't go from 0.1. Well, they went from 0.1 to 0.80 in the tank, And I could see the corals were stressing. I was getting algae that I never have. I was getting—there were lots of issues. And the only thing I could see, well, as soon as I came in and I measured I go, oh, my God. And I tried to bring it down way too fast. I didn't listen to myself, thinking I know this is bad. It didn't. It, it didn't happen overnight, but it did happen over seven days. So even that was bad enough, and that also kicked in another uh, art or STN episode. So even a stressor like phosphate can kick in STN.
1: Yep. No, for sure. Hey Mike, you mentioned uh, UV, and you're using it now on your uh, 500 gallon tank, right? Are you using that 24? Yeah, seven? I have a 120 watt UV sterilizer. Are you on. so? Are you using that 24 uh, seven? And if so, um, how are you managing all the bacteria um, additions in terms of going through that UV?
0: I turn the UV off uh, when I add the bacteria in the morning for four hours and let the basically circulate. I mean, like I said, it doesn't do anything for STN or RTN, but I've had zero. Problems with ick or any other diseases in the fish, I mean like none, which has never happened before, so I know it's killing off whatever is running through the tank I've also cut back on any kind of uh uh, uh Diana, dinoflagellates, the free swimming ones i've not had any issues with those since I put the u v on uh fortunately, i haven't had the non free swimming dinoflagellates, which a lot of people have had, but the u v has has taken care of that
1: yeah i um so on my uh, my young peninsula tank i um it's it's seven months old and I started it with uh with live rock. It's a bare bottom tank. And uh you know, I've been taking things really slow with the tank and, and um but my nitrates and the phosphates bottomed out on it for a couple of weeks and I'm like, Oh, okay, I better like get them up and I didn't want to have to dose nitrates and phosphates, I wanted to just feed more. I wanted to just feed heavily, more heavily in that tank. And which included like some amino acids. And boy, let me tell you I had some outbreak of dino's in in that tank, yeah. that uh, was it was a crazy, you know. It's just it. I I, I thought I saw some signs of it. I'm like, uh oh, I've seen this, uh, you know, picture before, yeah. and and uh, so it just it exploded. And so what what I did was, I um, I siphoned out as much as uh, of the of the dinos as I could, and um, blew basted off of the rocks what I couldn't siphon out. Did a couple of day blackout, but then I also put a UV um, sterilizer on the tank. And uh, again, knock on wood, two and a half weeks later, I've not seen, you know, one sign of the, uh, of the dinos. I mean, I, I did ID them in a, in a microscope and it did appear to be the, um, the, the variety that does go into the water column at, uh, at, at lights out. So, uh, you know, fortunately, but there's
0: actually an easy test for that. You just siphon some out and you put it in a cup of water of tank water and you spin the water and mess it all up. If it congeals, it's the kind that are free swimming that are problematic. If it stays distributed then those are the ones that you're really going to have problems oh. with.
1: Yeah, no, so knock on wood, it looks like I have the uh, the free-swimming ones. But, um, you know, I'm just kind of wondering whether I could continue using UV on that tank 24-7, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. Do you see any negative impact in using UV uh, 24-7 on a reef tank?
0: I've not had any issues with it because the the main thing, I still have a lot of fish in the tank, and I always have, I have a lot of tanks, and I'm always worried about an ick outbreak, which happens with tanks if you look at them funny. And since I've done this, I've not had any issues with that. I mean, there's like literally no white dots anywhere on any of the fish in the three tanks. So,
1: so the UV, you don't think is is zapping any of the beneficial uh, bacteria that's going through it, or is it? And it's just not. Um, having I'm it- I'm
0: turning it off when I'm adding the bacteria. I'm letting the bacteria settle in for at least four to six hours, and then right. I kick it back on. So it, it may be killing it, but if I haven't, if it hasn't attached to the rocks or anything after four to six hours, odds are it's not going to do anything anyway.
1: Right. So that's, you're, you're basically, uh, that's kind of like standard protocol in terms of dosing, uh, bacteria is you turn off your skimmer, you turn off a UV kind of let it turn out. off the carbon,
0: anything that the bacteria can adhere to. Yeah. And you let the bacteria hopefully adhere to your live rock and to your corals.
1: You think you should also turn off the activated carbon?
0: I turn that off anytime I okay. add anything.
1: Um, but uh, yeah, you know, so it's it's interesting. I, I, I think um, I'm definitely thinking about just running the uh, the UV because I just love the clarity of the water.
0: Yeah, I, I ran ozone before this and it was the water was very clear, but I didn't see the, the same level of, of things that I've seen beneficial with. I was, still had IC outbreaks and I still had other things from time to time. since I'm running this huge UV sterilizer, I'm not having any problems so far, knock on wood. So we
1: have a question from uh, Scotty Damron. What does uh, Mike or you or anyone think about adding uh, Benny Reef to their uh, frozen foods, Uh, you know, mysis, et cetera? I add um, Benny Benny Pets in hopes that the uh, probiotics would uh, help with the nutrient export. What do you think about that, Mike?
0: In in theory... It, it may help. I've not used it in that form. I've used it as, as part of the addition when I feed my LPS corals, which are in my 40 gallon nano tank, and the corals seem to respond to it very positively. But in terms of adding it all the time, I don't know how much it does. And I've not seen a tank, uh, you know, a bulk of supply comparison of, okay, here's the benefits tank and here's the non benefits tank showing that there's significant benefit. And that's actually the the problem I had when I ran a lot of the experiments I ran. See anything that was so dramatic, so fast that I go, "Wow, this made a big difference." A couple things did: blowing off all the gunk on the core on the live rock made a big difference. Adding the trace elements made a big difference. But I've now, like I've been now feeding uh, live phytoplankton and rotifers that I culture for the last five months. I'd love to tell you I've seen a dramatic change in anything. I really haven't seen anything different. Uh, it's not a pain in the butt cause I have a, a simplest system as I could possibly devise doing it, but I can't really say I saw something different. The next thing I may try, I may try raising baby brine shrimp and seeing if adding those, cause there's been a lot of people that said my corals go nuts adding that, doing that. But I'm trying to do things that after six months, if I do an experiment now, it's going to be for six months, it's gonna be a single thing. See if I see anything we're getting toward the end of June. I probably will take one of my uh, phytoplankton reactors offline and maybe make it into a brine shrimp hatchery.
1: So a couple of more um, comments and and, uh, questions here that I'm seeing one is from ATF uh, in the house. How's the hydro? This is another bacteria question. How's the hydrospace non sulfur purple bacteria? The uh, the science behind it seems solid. You know yeah, I, I
0: actually have added that. That was one of the other ones I would suggest, adding that one as well. Uh, I've added it three times. i love to say I saw something dramatic that next day, but uh, I, I've now been STN-free for about six weeks, which sounds like I'm an alcoholic. But when you have STN, it's something that's long, lingering, and painful. And that was one of the things I added uh, toward the end that may have helped to finish it at the end. I, I'd love to say definitely – but things were finally starting to get under control when I did add it.
1: A uh, question from uh, Great Bearded Reef. Hey Paul, thanks for tuning in again. Uh, Does Mike run a power filter along with moonshiners?
0: Yes, I do have a power filter in my sump. It does clean out a ton of gunk all the time, but between that and the uh, floss in uh, three, four different overflows, that get changed every three days. It I, I take a ton of nasty stuff. How nasty is it if I don't take the filter floss out and hose it down by the next day? By 30 hours afterwards, it smells like there's a dead body in the bucket that I have the filter floss in. So it's taking out a lot of nasty stuff out of the tank. I mean, it's really made a, a huge difference in terms of uh, helping to ma- maintain nitrates and phosphates, but also in terms of getting all the... Uh, free-floating gunk out of the tank.
1: Yeah, you know, it's... Um, can, so can you explain, uh, Mike, more in terms of moonshiners and what what it's, um, you know, the purpose of moonshiners? It's, it's a whole series of trace elements, right?
0: Right, he has virtually every individual trace elements. Uh, obviously, trace elements have been around since I started in this, and everyone's has this magic bottle. This will add purple, this will add pink, this will make your reds. But it's a mixture of things, and you don't know what the ratio are you don't know how much is in there and you don't have any way to tell so you're basically shooting in the dark adding at add five milliliters. it's all based on manufacturer's recommendations and you don't really have a tank to base it on saying look look how red and pink this is adding so you're basically from my point of view trusting these people and I I always trust but I always verify too so I uh, like the uh, moonshiners method in that you do an ICP test You get results, it tells you you this much barium, uh, this much uh, vanadium, this much whatever, and you plug all the numbers that you have, the volume of your tank, into a calculator, and it then tells you how much of his stuff you need to add of each individual one. Sometimes you don't have to add anything. Sometimes your tank's nice and balanced. Sometimes you have have to add more zinc. Sometimes you have to add more iron. Uh, I actually did an article on trace elements for TFH magazine, I think uh, two months ago, which talked about each one of the various trace elements that I'm adding, what each one does, and how they interact. Uh, Having worked in biotechnology and pharmaceuticals for all of my life, there's what's called a therapeutic window. That is, there's a level here which below which you don't get any effect, and there's a level here above which you either don't get or you get a negative effect. So what this system, from my mind, puts you in the therapeutic window. It gives you an idea of how much to add specifically to be in that sweet spot to optimize and maximize what the corals need. Basically, what you're trying to do is reduce one more limiting factor for the health and success of your corals. Uh, Literally everything we do in our tank is controlling a limiting factor. How much light do we have? How much PAR is in that light? How much of that light is 420 to 430 nanometers? How much, what's the temperature? What's the salinity? There's a zillion different limiting factors. What's the calcium? What's the alkalinity? That if those are not proper or in that therapeutic window, they become the limiting factor for your coral's growth. So what Andre has done is try to reduce trace elements from being the limiting factor. Uh, is it a perfect system? No, but I've been running it now for almost a year and a half, and I have seen real corals that were good get even better. Was it all attributed to this? No. I also think a lot of it is because my tank has gotten more stable. Yeah. But when you have things here, like I said, everybody's at this level. The next thing we're going is incrementally. How do we get things better, 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 better? One of them is probably by adding specific trace elements at the right levels.
1: Why uh, Moonshiners and not Triton? I mean, you're using the ICP tests, but um, why do you think Moonshiners is a better system for you versus, say, like a Triton?
0: I don't know what's in the Triton, and I see uh, Andre's tanks and Andre's corals, and I talk with Andre frequently. <laughs> so as a result, I trust Andre. So it comes down to a, a matter of trust for me. I, I know Eson, too, and I've seen his tanks, and the only issue I have with Eson's tanks, they're gorgeous, They don't have the level of fish that my tanks have Mm. in them. And it's something that very few people talk about. But there's a a big difference between a guy that has five fish in their tank and a guy that has 50 fish in their tank or 100 fish in their tank like I do. Uh, Fish add a whole other dimension of problems to a tank and issues with a tank. And I trust people that are more like me that have more fish in their tank than people that have no fish in their tank. Because I once had a uh, 240-gallon tank. There was all SPS corals. It was gorgeous, and I only had two fish in the tank. Mm. And you know what happened every time someone came over and looked at the tank? They'd go, wow, that's beautiful, Mike, but where's the fish? <laughs> so I love the fish in the tank. I mean, mm. I have a big mechuloseps tank. I have a big uh, powder blue tank. I have a ton of wrasses. I have a, a school of green chromis. I have tons of fish in my tank, schools of anthias. So that adds a whole nother level yeah. of, of problems. And the Triton tanks that I have seen that have been successful are gorgeous, but they don't have the level of fish in their tanks that I do. So um,
1: in in terms of the trace elements.
0: Uh, let Let me add one other thing. That's also why, even though I'm doing the Reef Moonshiners method, I still have to do water changes. Because the fish, like I said, produce, when you have a lot of fish like I do, produce a lot more issues than a low or moderate level of fish. So I have to clean out the detritus. I have to clean out the fish waste. I have to clean out the residual food. All the things that having a lot of fish cause in a tank.
1: What uh, what are you doing in terms of water changes? How often and, and uh, how much?
0: I'm doing 50 gallons every other week. Why? Because I have a 50 gallon tank. I have a 50 gallon bag of salt, and I have everything measured. So it's easy peasy. Yeah. Like I said, I try to make things as simple as I can.
1: And and you uh, you don't think that you're going to be able to replenish the trace elements just strictly through water changes?
0: Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. So I've done ICP tests after a water change and before a water change. There's slight variation in things, but I'm not adding, you know, gallons of a trace element. I'm adding the most I add of anything is five milliliters. So it's not like I'm dumping buckets of stuff in. So it's, it's, it's trace elements. It's parts per billion. So it's very low amounts of stuff.
1: Right. Um- let me ask you another question. So you like to do experiments, and I think you found that uh, the fewer experiments that you do within an 18-month period or whatnot, the better probably in terms of stability for a um, for a tank. But, you know, you've been at this for a long time in terms of keeping reef tanks. What do you think is the biggest change that you have made in terms of your reef keeping, um, you know, routine in the last 10 or 15 years? If you had to kind of point to one thing that you said, wow, that's making—
0: Understanding flow and increasing the flow, improving the flow, cleaning the powerheads more frequently so I get better flow, Mm -hmm. always trying to find more flow. Because one of the things I know from diving, when I'm out looking at corals, it's not like you sit here like a flower and it's sitting there and you can take a picture. While you're trying to take it, the current is taking you way Mm -hmm. away. There's so much more flow in there than we have in our tanks. The problem we have is, is mounting stuff down so that it can hold and encrust while the flow is stronger. The problem is a lot of times the flow knocks the corals off, blows it into a spot you can't get it, and you go, this is too much flow. No, this is bad getting the corals in the spot that you want them into. The flow is perfect. I mean, very rarely have I had flow, unless I have a little tiny nozzle blowing directly on something and knocking all the tissue off of the coral, it's not a flow issue a flow intensity issue, it's a flow distribution issue. So as long as you have a wide distribution, I mean, I'm running four jars on one side, I'm running five MP60s in the tank, because uh, that was one of the other things I found from the 20 people that did it. The minimum anyone had a flow in their tanks was 60 times the volume in yeah. the tank. The most was 120. I'm now running 140 times the tank's volume in my tank. I still don't think I have enough flow. Because it's a seven foot long tank and getting flow into that one, two foot section in the middle without having a big, ugly powerhead in the front blowing across it has been problematic.
1: Yeah. yeah, So my, my Peninsula reef tank has presented a lot of challenges in terms of flow because it's six foot long by three foot wide. And I don't know if you've ever had a Peninsula tank or not, but um, this is my first Peninsula tank. And so, um, you know, I was really trying to avoid putting any powerheads or recirculating pumps on the um, on the end of the tank you know the display end of the uh, the the, uh, the tank so right, right now i have um well i started with two mp60s and two mp40s on the uh end with the uh, overflow box and i was like all right, right i think that's good enough you know i i, I started with four i started no. with four uh, <laughs> mp40s and i was like all right i replaced the two mp40s with two mp60s and that's still it seemed like it was on the cusp of being okay but then when i put some frags in that tank some sps frags down near the display end of the tank i i soon realized i did not have enough flow in that tank so i added two mp40s to that end and uh it doesn't look terrible in terms of um you know on that side of the tank but i just think it's um you know the frags seem to be doing pretty well and and it's just to me flow is 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 a very critical piece
0: yeah i mean i, I- I saw these, the, the new giant gyre that they have out that has to be against a concrete wall so it doesn't blow the, other, but it will blow the other side of the tank out. So it's problematic. What I want is something in between because I'm running four of the biggest gyres they have now for tanks and it's still not enough flow. I'd like to, give them to do something between that giant sized gyre and the little tiny gyres we have, something bigger that can handle 500 gallons. Because now that there's enough 500 gallon tanks out there, people would spend the money on a 500 gallon good gyre but the thing that, that drives me crazy is having to take it apart and clean it which I now do every 3 months cuz it makes a huge difference in the amount of flow you get out of it
1: yeah i um i just picked up a uh, a gyra for my one of my frag tanks i just um i had one of the uh, the older gyras in the uh, in the tank and i have it uh, essentially on the bottom of the uh, the tank positioned underneath the uh, the frag rack to try to blast all the uh, detritus in the bottom of the tank out through that and so um I, uh, I I have one with the um, I forget which one it is, but it's I think it's over 5,000 gallons per hour in terms of that flow. So that's that's going to be a pretty powerful one. And Hopefully, I keep the frag rack from flying all over the place.
0: Yeah, that's uh, frag racks are. It's amazing how much dirt and other stuff accumulates in a frag tank for whatever oh, that's, reason. That's
1: that's always something. I mean, every week I take uh, my my uh, my my racks out. And I just siphon all the detritus out underneath them because no matter how much flow I have in those frag tanks, it's just that stuff collects. I don't know where it's coming from. I got a lot of snails in that tank, so I guess they're pooping a lot and all that sort of thing. But um, that's that's always that's that's a big challenge to try to keep an um, you know frag tank detritus free and algae free.
0: Yeah, I have two powerheads on the bottom too, but I, there's still always a dead spot, and you still have to go and siphon it out. Otherwise, you start getting algae growing on the racks, and it's just.
1: Jobs and nuts. So, we have a question from uh, RRR Reefer. Do you feel like you can overload a tank by controlling nutrients with no pox? Have you ever uh, used. Uh...
0: I've, I've played with those and I've played with other uh, carbon sources. I mean, vodka, vinegar, sugar. You can manage everything, but the question is how easy and how simple can you make it? I mean, I have friends that are running cifrax systems with big, thick pipes of ciferax adding no pox to it and getting phosphate there. The question is, what is your goal? Is your goal to get phosphates down to zero? That should not be your goal. But having it as a happy medium. I mean, From my point of view, I want it typically to be from 0.05 to 0.12, somewhere in that range. I've never had any problems with it in that level. Like I said, when I got to 0.8, I was, it was problematic, but Sanjay has run his time up to as high as 0.80, but he runs his lights at such a blinding light and he runs high phosphates, high nitrates, high alkalinity. He could get away with it because he was literally growing the corals out of the tank at the time. He's now brought things down to normal levels except for his lighting. And he's had more issues now that he's gotten them lower than when he had them higher.
1: Do you, do you um, play around with your LEDs? Um, you know, at this point to try to chase certain colors of, um, of corals. Do you tweak certain channels like the greens or the reds in in the leds or do you just try to like again kind of leave it alone and keep that stable
0: i'm i'm basically running as simple a system as i have ever run i i manipulated probably five different patterns over the past couple years now i'm just running the ab plus system and then for the last four hours it goes blue then it, then the blues shut off and then it's uh purple and royal blue for the last half an hour and that's when everything is like crazy colored like it's a black light. But that, that's the only thing I do. I, I quit playing around. I quit – let the coral stabilize because one of the rules that I, I live by and that I have learned the hard way is anytime you make a change or move a coral anywhere, it takes two months for it to adjust to yeah. that. So every time I change the lights or change this or change that, I start the clock all over again on two months. So that's why it's taken so long for a lot of stuff to grow in my tank. I kept resetting the clock. Now that I've gotten things stable, the clock has been moving and the corals are growing as a result. So I quit tinkering with it. Let light particularly take six months for the corals to acclimate. So I'm giving everything a long time to acclimate. I do acclimate everything. Everything starts off in like 25% LEDs then eventually moves up to 45, then eventually uh, at max in my tank, it's running at 80%. Are you
1: concerned at all about uh, par and trying to hit certain par values? Or at this point, is it more about um, just having you know uh, sufficient intensity and, and just more about the spectrum?
0: I try to hit high par for a relatively short time. Uh, the The max par is on from four to six hours. And then on the upper... Quarter to a third of the tank, it's 600 or thereabouts. It's you know 450 where are and it goes down to like 2 250 down at the bottom areas where the corals are. But that's only for four to six hours. Beyond that, it's pointless to run them for that much longer. As as Dana Riddle has pointed out, and as numerous articles have done, at that point you start getting into oxygen oxygen poisoning and other issues. So I try not to do that. Plus. I'm from the old school where you ran halides, and I liked how the corals looked under white light. But to me, some of the white light that the LEDs put out is not as nice as some of the white light that the metal halides put out. So the corals tend to look uh, less enjoyable to me. Yeah. Uh, having been out on reefs, what's interesting is you could swim over an entire reef. You'd never see a section as colorful as any of our tanks. All you would see is brown corals. So we have basically changed the morphology and the coloration of the corals by the usage of blue lighting over the past decade. I mean, it, I, I mean, I have pictures of, of reefs there were table corals the size of pianos. If you could find any color but beige or brown on that table, and now you bring it home and it's cherry red and it's pink and it, you know there were cherry red and pink ones, but they were typically not the largest tables we saw. They were typically kind of shaded. They were typically kind of deeper. So we have we have changed things dramatically with the lighting that we're doing. So I, I, I've i quit manipulating things. I've played with a lot of things. Now I do it so it's enjoyable to look at the day. There's enough light for the corals. And then the night it turns blue. Uh, I mean, like by the same token, I've seen Sanjay's tank now. And I probably have more pictures of his tank than he does over the past 15 years, actually 20 years. We've been friends now for 27 years, I think. Wow. Maybe even longer. He didn't have kids when we were... First became friends. I have seen his tank. He runs all his t- LEDs 100% for at least eight hours a day. The colors on the coral are great; they look really good. But I've also been there at night when he flicks on just the blues, and it'll blow away any tank anywhere I have ever seen.
1: Oh, in terms of uh, the, um, you
0: can't see it when uh, he has the daylights on, and people go, "Oh, you don't have the colors that these do." He has the colors; he's just not running just that spectrum of light. Because our perception of things and the corals' bioluminescence or fluorescence off of those lights are two entirely different things. He has the fast growth, he has the nice growth tips, so he gets the coloration. And when you see it at night, it's like, okay, game's over. I, you know, I want to go home and throw my tank away. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, we, uh, we talked about that when I had him on the live stream last, uh, last fall. And, 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 you know, one of the points that he made is that your corals are going to grow a lot faster under full spectrum lighting versus blue lights.
0: Sanjay, since I have known him, has grown corals like cinder blocks. We're literally, <laughs> he used to grow Acropora humilis. Nobody has humilis anymore. Sanjay used to be the only one, few purple that would grow Acropora humilis. We would grow into a cinder block. And I'd come over and we'd drain a tank and we'd go in with a hammer and chisel to try and get this big monster coral out of his tank because it had grown so thick and sh- so profusely in his tank, it was dominating everything. I mean, I've never seen other people do that. Now everybody has tenuous and other things. They're yeah. nice, but they're not like that.
1: I remember back uh, years and years and years ago when you could buy like a wild uh, piece of the, uh, the, you know, a purple humulus. And that was like, a showpiece that you could, um, you know, and I actually did have success bringing in a, a wild humulus in purple to striking purple. And I kept the purple yeah. color. Um, I guess that doesn't always uh, work out in terms of the uh, holding the color.
0: It, it under the proper conditions, it will hold its color. I mean, I've seen turquoise ones with purple tips. Uh, I have a, a green one downstairs with slightly purple tips that came in like this. And now it's this big. So you, you, you can get them. Uh, it's also getting blasted with flow, and that's you know, people don't take that into account. Some certain corals require significantly more flow than other corals. I mean, they just come from areas where there's strong flow. tenoas typically don't come from areas where they're getting blasted with current. Versus humilis, geminifera, spatulatas, they typically like more flow. I mean, we've we've started to forget and not know the different conditions that everything has. One, because most of the stuff we're getting now is aquaculture or mariculture, right. so it, it has become, it's like the live bear tank behind me. They've been bred to, the, to tolerate the conditions that we have. These have been grown to tolerate the yep. conditions that we have. And the corals that don't tolerate those conditions either don't thrive or we don't get them anymore. You never see maricultured yeah. humilis. Uh, you, you, you rarely see other thick-branched corals you don't see maricultured stags for the most part
1: i love stags too those are just great great uh, corals just a natural looking coral in a in a reef tank so um yeah. mike listen i want to be um um sensitive to your uh to your time here and uh just wanted to uh to wrap up the show any any uh final thoughts before we tune out for the night
0: one last thing, is, as I stress throughout this that I learned during our incarceration where we we're all stuck inside, try to keep your tank as stable as possible. If you learn nothing else tonight, don't be constantly fiddling around, trying if this guy's this, this guy's doing that. If you have it where you're happy with it and things are good and things are growing, give everything time. Time solves a lot of problems in our tanks. If you have an issue, manage it, obviously. But if you're not having issues, don't try to find new issues to cause trouble with. I've done that stupidly many times, particularly over the last 18 months. And now my whole goal is stability, 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 just to see the kind of success that I've had in the past when I wasn't constantly experimenting, when I wasn't constantly trying to change something to make things a little bit better.
1: And it's always good to always um, make one change at a time to kind of see, uh, isolate whether or not that is working um, Right.
0: And give it enough time to see because you're not going to see anything in a month. It's going to take you at least probably two or three months till you start to see what effect that change has made. Yep.
1: Well, Mike, I want to thank you again so much for being on the uh, on the live stream. I'd love to have you back again uh, at some point down the road and and perhaps we'll see in person at one of the uh, the upcoming trade shows. I know you want to be out and about now that COVID is seemingly winding down, right?
0: yep we're going on vacation and everything so life's good
1: (laughs) all right mike well listen that'll do it for this show i want to uh, again thank mike um for being a guest on the live stream and i also want to thank our sponsor marine depot so uh for supporting the live stream please keep them in mind when you're shopping for your reef tank i also want to thank all you folks out there that uh, tuned in tonight and the folks that um, made the contributions via the super chat thank you so much my next live stream will be on monday Coming back Monday, on June 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I got Scott Anderson from Mile High, Mile High Reefers, so he will be the guest. Should be another great show. Until then, be safe, be well, and.